So Frank and Mabel are at Mabel's 60th birthday party. Frank had turned 60 a few months earlier. They'd been married for 40 years. And Frank went outside on the patio for a few moments to get some fresh air. And a fairy godmother showed up and said, Frank, this is your lucky day. You've been a good man. You've had a good marriage. You get whatever you wish for today. Frank thought a moment and said, well, what I'd really like is to be married to a woman 30 years younger than me. And the fairy godmother said, no problem. Poof with her magic wand. Frank was 90 years old. <laughs> and the story has a moral. And the moral is, when you do not love people where they are, you get uglier. And we're going to see that over and over in these amazing stories of Jesus, but particularly in the one we're going to study this weekend and next weekend. We started last week this series called Good, Bad, and Ugly, and we're looking at some of the unique parables found only in the Gospel of Luke. And as we read these stories, they all have surprise endings. We make these rash judgments about who's good or bad or ugly, but we have to wait to the end of the story to find out that sometimes God's assessment is not our own. And that's especially true with the story we'll study today. Because in the story, there are people that are going to be good, bad, and ugly. And they may not be who you first expect. But before we can read the story... We have to know the story behind the story. There's a story that caused the story to be told. So start with me in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, I don't know exactly what his motives were when he says he wants to test Jesus. But typically, when an expert in the law wants to test Jesus, he has an agenda. And one thing you learn as you read the Gospels, it's never a good idea to try to make Jesus look bad. And so in the course of administering his test, this legal scholar finds himself taking one. He says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you've got a Bible. What do you think it says? Which, by the way, is typically how Jesus answers questions. By asking questions. He asks a lot more questions than he tends to answer. In fact, this is a Jewish way of teaching. They still do it today. Eli Wiesel, the famous Holocaust survivor, was asked one time, Why did Jewish people often answer questions? questions by asking them. He said, why not? (laughs) Now, did you notice that the lawyer gave a theologically accurate answer that Jesus commended? Now, if you were taking a Bible test and Jesus was going to grade your test, 
How would you feel if Jesus gave you a good grade? Jesus says, you have answered correctly. But it doesn't seem to make him feel good. It makes him uncomfortable. And he seems suddenly compelled to need to justify himself. And so look at verse 29 from the message. It says, looking for a loophole, he asked, and just how would you define neighbor? You see, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood if you get to decide who gets to live in it. And so he says, who's my neighbor? But what he's really asking is, who is not my neighbor? Because the command to love my neighbor as myself is a whole lot more manageable if I get to define who my neighbor is. Give me a legal answer, Jesus. Who is my neighbor? Here's the problem with legal answers. As soon as you get one, you have just de-neighbored somebody. And Jesus won't go there. Because he knows how wicked our hearts are. We can do this. You know, we can take the clear word of God and we can get in our discussion groups and we can debate and we can nuance and we can manipulate. And by the end of our discussion, we have come up with an interpretation which seems to suggest God's word doesn't mean what it clearly said. So Jesus says, I'm not going to give you a legal definition. But I'll tell you a story. And he tells a story. Instead of giving three definitions of Hebrew words for neighbor, he tells a story. And it is literally one of the best known stories in the world. People who are completely irreligious have heard the phrase, good Samaritan. Do you remember about ten years ago when they had the very final episode of Seinfeld? And don't look at me, Pius. I know that you watched it. You remember that story? <laughs> and the characters in the last episode have been given a, a, a contract for an NBC sitcom. And they're being flown to Paris as a gift. But the plane breaks down and they're in this little town in Massachusetts just walking down the sidewalk waiting for the plane to get fixed. And they see a guy who's getting mugged and his car is getting stolen and instead of moving in to help they just take the whole thing in Kramer even puts it on his camcorder and they make fun of the man getting attacked they laugh at him and when the robbery is over but Jerry says let's go get something to eat and a policeman walks up and says wait a second you're under arrest and he says for what says for failing to give reasonable aid when it was possible to do so He said, I've never heard of such a law. And the officer said on national TV, it's the good Samaritan law. Because they knew all of the nation understood what that phrase means. Now think about that show. And it was the most popular show in America for 10 years. And it was a show about four of the most self-absorbed people who've ever been on TV. They never did anything for anybody. And the critics hated the last show because it reviewed their nine years of total self-absorption. But personally, I thought it was an interesting commentary on America. That our favorite people do nothing for other people. What does it mean to live like a good neighbor? 
You can't find the answer in a dictionary. But you can find it in a story. Let's read. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, this story is so rich, as I mentioned earlier, it's going to take us two weekends to deal with it. But this morning, I want to share with you three things we can learn as Jesus comments on goodness. And here's the first, that good theology can reside in a bad heart. Think about it. If you fell into a ditch... If you were robbed or if your car broke down in the middle of a night in a country road and you were stuck, wouldn't you want somebody to come along who was a great student of the Bible? If you were in a crisis, wouldn't you want somebody who had great knowledge of the Word of God to be the first person to come along? And Jesus says, maybe, maybe not. Because this priest and this Levite, like the lawyer, apparently are in the Word. They get good answers on tests. But the Word doesn't seem to be in them. They've got the right answers in their head, but not in their heart. And so here's what happens when you get great orthodoxy combined with a bad spirit. It produces ugly religion. Or to put it another way, you can be a great Bible student and a lousy neighbor. Because good theology can reside in a bad heart. You can hide for a long time behind all of your fancy religious questions. But eventually, you're going to come along somebody in a ditch. And at that point, what God wants to know, is your theology going to prompt you to get up off your donkey? I'm glad some of you are listening. Because... When those who ought to know better 
fail God. He is always free to choose new agents. That's point number two. That Jesus is saying good neighbors come in all shapes and sizes. Today, you call somebody a Samaritan, that's a compliment, but not in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, it was a slur. It was an insult. You called somebody a Samaritan if you were trash-talking. you got to understand, folks, this story had shock value to Jesus' first audience that I think we've lost. He's talking primarily to a group of Jewish people. And he starts the story, this guy's in the ditch... This poor Jewish pilgrim's gotten mugged and a, a priest comes by and he's too holy to get involved. And some people in the crowd are nodding saying, yeah, I know some priests like that. Their noses are way up in the air. And then a Levite comes by and he doesn't do anything either. And they're thinking, yeah, I know some Levites like that, a bunch of snobs. Because everybody knows what Jesus is going to say next. He's going to say, and then... An ordinary, everyday Jew came by and helped the man. He didn't say that. He said, but along came a Samaritan. And people gasped. Why did he do that? If he had said, but then an ordinary Jew came by, it still would have been a good story. He still could have made a good point that you ought to help people. Why did he intentionally put into the story as the noble figure somebody he knew his audience would instinctively hate? But the Bible does that over and over if you just read it closely. Samaritans are always coming by in God's story doing what you don't think they would do. There's Abraham following God in this new way of faith. And Melchizedek shows up. God wants him in the story. And there's Moses doing his thing and Jethro the Midianite shows up. And the people of God are moving into the land. And Rahab, the prostitute, enters the story. Samaritans are always showing up in God's story doing what you didn't think they would do. Naaman, the Syrian, shows up in the story. Cyrus, the Persian, shows up in the story. You have the birth of Jesus and these magi show up. Now, in the Old Testament, what they did for a living was condemned. But they come to worship the new king. The people hated the Roman occupation, but every single Roman centurion in the New Testament is pictured as a noble and decent man. Samaritans are always coming along in God's story. Because Jesus is deliberately smashing boundaries that aren't going to have any place in the kingdom he's building. He's inviting us to join a movement that's got room for everybody. And if you think for a moment, somewhere in your past, God sent a Samaritan to you. Now maybe you ignored it, maybe you abhorred it, 
But God sent a Samaritan to you. We were in ninth uh, grade mission trip in Nashville last month. It was my privilege to be with some awesome kids. And we rented these two buses because we had a big group of about 100. And one of our buses broke down. And our bus driver, Tim, was underneath because there was something about the air compressor. And he was trying to get it fixed. And it wasn't getting fixed. And he had the bus jacked up doing his work. And this homeless man walks along and sees Tim and looks under there and just so happens he knows how to fix air compressors on buses. And so he helps Tim fix the air compressor and as he climbs out he says to Tim, friend you better get out from under that bus. I think that jack is about to collapse. Tim rolled out. 20 seconds later the jack collapsed. And if he had still been under that bus he'd have been dead. All he asked for was a cigarette, and he went on his way. A Samaritan came along. You see, I've read this story for years, and I always thought it was calling me to be a good neighbor. Well, it is. But maybe it's also calling me to start letting people I've ignored in the past be my neighbor. Maybe God wants you to start letting people be your neighbor. You haven't looked for before. Because good neighbors come in all shapes and sizes. One more thing. Jesus is saying that good deeds are life signs. And I use that phrase deliberately because the whole story started with the question, what must I do to possess eternal life? And Jesus' answer seems to be saying the surest sign that you possess the life of God is that you live your life mercifully doing kindness for other people. Remember, at the end of the story, who was the neighbor, the one who showed him mercy? Jesus did not say, so go and preach likewise. I need a series of sermons on mercy. He did not say, go and feel likewise. I need a group of people to get in small studies and sit around in circles and just feel so bad about other people. He didn't even say, go and pray likewise. He said, go do it. I'm afraid that too many people think that Christianity is basically a religion of thou shalt not. And to be a good Christian, you learn of all the things you're not supposed to do anymore that used to be fun. And we wonder why our young people are so bored. Jesus never presented discipleship as the absence of badness. It was always the presence of active goodness. Because that's how he lives. The Bible even says in Acts 10.38 that Jesus went around doing good. We think being a do-gooder is an insult, but not Jesus. It's how he lived his life. Galatians chapter 6 says, So don't get tired of doing what's good. And don't get discouraged and give up. For we'll reap a harvest of blessing at the appropriate time. And whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to our Christian brothers and sisters. Now, the Bible does not teach, and Jesus was not teaching, that good deeds are the way to life. He's saying that good deeds are the way of life. For those that have entered the kingdom of God. That acts of mercy are the sign 
that your heart has been regenerated by the grace of God. I think two more scriptures make that real clear. Ephesians 2 says, salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it, for we're God's masterpiece. And he created us anew in Christ Jesus. Why? So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Good deeds weren't the way to life, they're the way of life for people that have been created anew in Christ Jesus. Titus chapter 3. He saved us not because of the good things we did, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins and he gave us a new life through the Holy Spirit. And he generously poured out the Spirit upon us because of what Jesus Christ, our Savior, did. He declared us not guilty because... Of his great kindness. And now we know we'll inherit eternal life. Again, notice. How do we know we're going to inherit eternal life? Because we put faith in what Jesus did. But now watch. These things I've told you are all true. And I want you to insist on them. So that everyone that trusts in God. Will be careful to do good deeds all the time. You see his point? When you grasp grace. When grace is stressed, somebody's about to get blessed. Because this is not the natural way to live, going around helping others. The natural way to live is like Jerry and Kramer. Self-absorbed, seeing how uninvolved you can stay. It's only a work of God. It is the Holy Spirit doing a work in you that enables you to go out and do works for other people. That good deeds are life signs. That's why we place such a value on service here. That's why you hear over and over that we're trying to grow followers of Jesus through worship and community and service. That's why we're always saying we've got to do good in the neighborhood. Our goal is not to be the best church in the city. Our goal is to be the best church for the city. To be a blessing to the city. Not to sit behind our walls and curse it. For all the bad they do. That's why we take these kids on mission trips that you're giving funds. I got to go to Nashville. Look at some of the pictures of the kids there. We went to these two centers called Yes Centers. Youth Encouragement Services. Where they take care of of inner city kids that come from very uh, desperate home situations. Our kids built a retaining wall to stop flooding at the centers. They uh, did uh, disaster relief uh, there at that center. They, did, uh, they took food to the homeless in this homeless tent city. They uh, worked at a camp that these kids get to go to. Uh, they uh, every day did a VBS for the kids and taught them stories about Jesus. And they took them uh, swimming. They took them uh, skating. They just loved and loved and loved and loved on the kids. They did repairs all around the buildings. They, they picked up trash in the city. We even found one starving child. As you'll see in a moment. And we tried to teach her how to feed herself. It didn't go so well. But we did our best. <laughs> and I think they will tell you. Even though we worked hard every day. They had a blast. Because Jesus says you you find life in giving, not in hoarding and keeping. 
Do you know that's one of the reasons we gather? All my life as a kid, I heard the verse, don't forsake the assembly of the saints. And it was followed by a sermon on it, come to church. But there's a verse right before that verse that's the key. Hebrews 10.24 says, think of ways to encourage one another to outburst of love and good deeds. That in other words, one of the reasons we come to church is so that we can encourage the people we see to do more good deeds next week. So I thought we should do that right now. I want you right now to turn to your neighbor and I want you to say, do somebody some good this week. Do that right now, please. Okay, if I could have your attention, we're going to do that one more time. Because I saw two or three wives that turned to their husbands and said, do somebody some good this week. That's not the spirit I was looking for. Remember, outburst of love. So turn to your neighbor and say, do somebody some good this week. Do it one more time. And one more thing. One more thing. Did you notice that Jesus never did answer the question the lawyer asked? He answered another one. Neighbors are not defined. They are discovered. Your neighbor is the person right in front of you with needs. And so what Jesus is really asking in the story is who is going to be a neighbor. And I'm sure the priest and the Levite would have claimed good neighbor status, but only the Samaritan acted like a neighbor. Here, get this. Here's the point. You don't get to decide who your neighbor is. That is not your job. You get to decide whether or not you're going to act like a neighbor. And so this happens to all of us all the time. It happened to me in Nashville on the mission trip. I had gone in the car to Home Depot with Ken Potterella to pick up some things and stopped at a store on the way back, a gas station. And this guy rushes up to me and says, sir, I don't mean to bother you. I never do this. I'm so embarrassed and you know what's coming. He said, I'm trying to get to a funeral of my family in Shelbyville, Tennessee, and I have no gas. Could you even just give me $2 for some gas? Well, $2 wasn't going to get him to Shelbyville, Tennessee. Was he telling me the truth? I don't know. You never know if that guy in the ditch is faking or really hurt. But I'd been living with this story. And I've always, in those situations, wondered, should I help or not? Is this guy for real or not? And for the first time it dawned on me, that's not my job. In that moment, the issue wasn't, is he my neighbor? The issue was, am I going to act like a good neighbor? And so I gave him enough money to make sure he could get to Shelbyville and back home. And I don't have to worry whether he was responsible or noble or not. I just have to be a good neighbor. 
Our job is not to define neighbors. Our job is to meet them one by one every day as God presents them to us. Because it all, in the end, comes down to basin theology. Every one of you has a basin full of water. And you're going to do one or two things with your life. You're going to wash your hands like Pilate did and said, I don't want to be involved. Or you're going to get down on your knees and say, give me your feet. Why doesn't Luke tell us how the lawyer responded? Because the Spirit of God wants you to finish the story. And so, Father, I pray right now over this great crowd of people who have, Father, the resources and the potential to bless a city that we will hear this word of Jesus today. That we'll do more today than just go home good Bible students. But we are about to release a room full of good neighbors. Help us to remember, God, we were once in the ditch. And Jesus came along. We would like to be more like him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's so much good to be done. So much is being done in this church. So much yet to do. We're going to sing about that. And as we sing, if you would like an elder to pray with you, would you go straight to the chapel? They'll meet you there. If you're ready to give your heart to Christ and be baptized today, just walk right down to the front. Let's all stand and encourage each other with these words.